1: Today's episode is brought to you in part by Between the Covers, a podcast for listeners, readers, and writers who seek out in-depth conversations about literature and about the questions of craft that arise in the creative process. Past guests have included Zadie Smith, George Saunders, Maggie Nelson, Carmen Maria Machado, and Ada Limon. This year, there's also a new monthly series on the show called Crafting with Ursula, where writing luminaries from Kim Stanley Robinson to Adrian Marie Brown discuss their own work in relation to that of Ursula Le Guin. Subscribe to Between the Covers with your favourite podcast app or visit the podcast archive at tinhouse.com slash podcasts for more information about the show. From Sugar23, I'm Angela Ledgerwood, and this is Lit Up. 2022 has been a huge year for this week's guest, Cara Priest, the co-founder of Bellatrist, the monthly book club and beloved platform for book lovers that she started with her best friend and fellow avid reader, actress Emma Roberts. Since then, the pair have become the book whisperers in Hollywood and beyond. Kara is also the co host of Sleepwalkers, a podcast about artificial intelligence. Its second season will be out soon. She is also the executive producer, most recently, of the Hulu series Tell Me Lies and the Netflix series First Kill. She is a very busy person, as you can hear. Our chat could have lasted for hours. Her candid, no BS approach to art, literature, is just so refreshing, and I hope you love this chat. I'm happy to be here. I'm so glad you're (laughs) here. We have the book whisperer here. Well, oh,
0: oh, 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 (laughs) Jesus, I always forget about that thing that, I don't know if that's what you're talking about, but someone was reminding me that there was that article about the celebrity book stylist. That yes. is bizarre.
1: I love that article though.
0: I li- I liked it too. I liked it too, but it was a real like it's it felt like a plot line in younger. And it was it's not real. There's no celebrity book stylist. Kendall Jenner, it's like a modeling agent who like gives people books, but
1: Oh, they have good taste.
0: They do. They I mean, they like Chelsea Hodson. so they have and and Melissa Broder and stuff like that.
1: Well, I feel like this is a good place to start (laughs) because we have Cara Price. That's how you say it. In person. She is the co-founder of Bellatrist and a producer, a creator of content, a talent spotter. And you're just a huge advocate for writers. And I feel you have like the most impeccable taste. I always know if you've picked something or you're reading something that it's... It has to be delved into because there will be a reason why, like a point of view coming. Thank you for
0: saying that. I um, hope so, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's what you do. So I have you here. <laughs> I'm here, uh,
0: yes. I'm here in the office.
1: Okay. So I want people to fully grasp Bellatrist and what you do. I wanna know just that that kernel, you know, best friends, readers, mm-hmm. why do why did you need to do this?
0: Mm-hmm. We started Bellatrist. For a few reasons, but one of them was that Emma and I just like to recommend books to each other. And, you know, not everybody's friend also has fans, right? (laughs) So when that happens and you think about, okay, maybe these recommendations that we're giving to each other would actually... Be interesting to other people, especially other people who watch your shows or whatever. Bellatrist was sort of born out of the fact that Emma noticed that a lot of people on Instagram, these, I'm talking like Instagram 1.0, like hipstamatic, you know, filtered. were like, what are you reading? What should I read? What should I read on her posts? And so we started Bellatrist as like a Emma agnostic, but obviously involved book club that we were going to pick. The only thing we sort of committed to doing still, the only thing we commit to doing is picking a book every month because we felt as though that wasn't something that was manageable for people to read a book every month. And we've been doing that for five years. Holy smokes. Yeah. For five years, which when you're a millennial is an absolute lifetime. (laughs) I think Emma had this sense that that's where people were. And, and she was right in the sense of bookstagram has really flourished on Instagram. And I think it's one of the very, very positive corners of an otherwise sometimes negative and toxic space. <laughs> but I think that um, her, you know, our instinct was correct, and that people do have one major question, which is what should I read next? And so that was sort of Bellatrix 1.0. And then since then, we started, you know, doing about, we have a newsletter, and I'm a big quotes person. And so we've done hundreds of these, you know, Bellatrix quotes from different books and writers. And then we, once they started rolling out more live stream tools, On Instagram, we started doing that, especially in the pandemic of just like, you know, hey, we have this incredible privilege to have access to authors as, you know, let's just talk to them about their books. Even if we haven't even read them yet, just giving the opportunity to have a conversation about the book. And so that's been really fun. And then the production company is, you know, the last three years really, and very much a function of what I personally like wanted to do in my career. I was always sort of like, well, how do I make when I was younger it was movies but you know TV that's grounded in this sort of love of reading and the job that I knew existed was a book scout which I knew was a very niche now very important job instead I sort of we sort of were like well why don't we use Bellatrix which already has this reading community as a way to like Reese Witherspoon did with Hell Sunshine you know make our own stuff uh, largely based on literary IP so that has been, that's this current iteration of Bellatrix, but the book club remains. What are you reading right now? I'm glad you asked. I, I actually am not reading this because I knew I was going to be asked, which is, I think, a lot. <laughs> when, you, when you're a person who re, who's asked what they're reading a lot, you start to have your performative choice and then your real choice. Yeah. Uh, and I actually know, I, I was a, a friend of mine suggested that I read Paula Fox's Desperate Characters. And Paula Fox is actually Courtney Love's grandmother <laughs> and and was a prolific writer of, of YA and also adult fiction and was sort of rediscovered by Jonathan Franzen in, and in, uh, I think Norton, I don't know if it's Norton, it could be a different publisher, but republished a lot of her adult fiction in the early 2000s or late 90s. And one of them was this book, Desperate Characters, which is about a woman and her husband who live in Brooklyn in the, I think in the 70s, late 60s, early 70s. A cat attacks her, like a stray cat attacks her, and it sort of upends her life. But, I mean, Paul Fox is an incredible writer. It's crazy. It's crazy what a good writer she is. And I think a lot of other writers, and particularly Jonathan Franzen, uh, sort of discovered her in the way that, you discover sort of like uh, Lucia Berlin or whatever, and we're like, what? Who is this person? Um, and she's died, but but that book I'm reading right now is so good. It's not – there's v- very little plot, but you just have to sort of read like 10 pages at a time and go, what the fuck, you know, and keep reading it. So. I
1: can't wait. I feel like there are sometimes those books that feel like the before and after as a reader, mm-hmm. you know, there's those moments I feel like – I put off reading Anna Karenina for that long because I was like, really? It, right. Like, it's that good? Mm-hmm. You know, and then you go, oh, my God, it's brilliant. But is there a book like that for you that you can just think back on?
0: Oh, yeah, The Bell Jar for sure. When I was a kid, when I was yeah. like in high – you're saying it's like before the fall of man, after the fall of yes. man kind of thing. There's a word for that. It's prelapsarian, right? There's like before people – before the fruit. It's like
1: the loss of innocence. Yeah, I feel like because I speak to a lot of memoirists, mm. and I just had Isaac Fitzgerald on, mm-hmm. and I feel like he has that moment in his life. He's eight. There's a before and after something happens. And I feel like so many people, maybe when they're looking back on their life, making sense of it, they can finally see that moment clearly. Um, and maybe we all have it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, well, I was going to say... Th- do I, the Bell Jar, for sure, which I read when I was in uh, 11th grade here, you know, I was like a, I was probably 16. Uh, that was a big one for me. I was like, oh, people write like this. Or, you know, Sylvia Plath, you know, someone wrote like this. That's very interesting to me. And then I wanted to read everything like it, which then you get disappointed because there is, there's, she's very singular. And then you have things in your life that are, I think I've heard implantation memories, is that the name where it's like um, the things that you that are, or maybe they're called anchor memories? I don't know. I don't know which one it is. It might be an anchor. In any case, it has the same meaning, which is like something that happens that then is like a centrifuge, which then pulls in everything else and contextualizes everything else. And I just remember listening to this episode of Revisionist History, Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, where he talked about. brian williams quote-unquote lying about being in that helicopter and this idea that if you have an anchor memory then the particulars that surround that memory can often be wrong (laughs) but i you know i think i have like a few anchor memories or events in my life that then i'm not sure exactly how everything else that's around it is true or not but the thing is very much like a bookend in my life
1: can you share one of them That's not to do with
0: books. Yeah. uh, Well, uh, you know, I uh, probably, my father passed away. My father was in publishing, but he passed away in a tragic accident. So that would be one of them. Then um, I got in a very bad accident. uh, So that would also be one of them. Uh, Getting sober would be one of them. Uh, Coming out would be one of them. Coming out, yeah, unfortunately, I'm from that generation where that's some of this younger generation don't make such a big to-do of it. But, um, so those things, those are a bunch of them
1: <laughs> there's there's some big ones. and, yeah, do you remember what? because I feel what from what I've gathered, reading really is an anchor for your life. Like mm-hmm. it's a place of solace. Were there any books that you remember being? pivotal or important in any of those periods?
0: That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, the White Album actually uh, was my gateway, which I read in freshman year at Syracuse. I went to Syracuse for a year or about a year and I left. But in that first year, I think I sort of had this very delayed reaction to the sudden nature of my dad's death. And I got very depressed and I had discovered the White Album, I don't know how, honestly. Oh, yeah, I do. I do. My mom was reading The Year of Magical Thinking, and being the contrarian I am, I was like, I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to read something else. And I I just, growing up, I didn't know who she was. I didn't know who she was in high school. Um, and, you know, because we were reading, like, Tim O'Brien <laughs> and, like, um, and, and Salinger in high school. So I basically read The White Album, and it, like, the whole thing was underlined. The whole thing was highlighted and underlined. Um, and that was kind of a book, I guess, that changed me as a reader. Mm. Also, another nonfiction book, which was Into the Wild, which is still one of my favorite books by John Krakauer, that I found so haunting. I was like, I didn't know you could be so haunted by a book. And then The Year of Magical Thinking too actually was very important and very not grounding, actually, very upsetting. <laughs> <laughs> but it, was, it actually wasn't that comforting. But I actually don't really find comfort in books. I find like…
1: Discomfort
0: yeah, or… Yeah. But I but I prefer to be uncomfortable. I mean, that's why I don't really watch comedy on television because I'm not…
1: Looking for that.
0: No, I find comfort in food. <laughs> like that's about it. <laughs> there isn't a book that I read and I'm like… Even, you know, people like cozy novels and things about Christmas in, in towns. Like I, I don't, I just, one of the things that I love about reading is that it's still challenging for me. Most of my parents are in the book business, which is how I come by this whole thing.
1: Honestly. Gosh. I mean, I didn't grow up. I grew up around in a household of books, but I didn't understand that there were jobs yeah. inside of this world of books.
0: It, it, I, I, I've said this before. I've said this before. I don't know if I've said it like on a recorded line. But I, I, my mom is actually a book publicist and my dad was a book packager and publisher. And when I was a kid, I thought that was a, a, a gender binary. Genuinely. I was like, my mom's a girl publisher, you know, she's a publicist, which in fact wasn't untrue <laughs> at the time of a lot of people who work in book publicity are actually women. Although a lot of them are fronted by men, very famous men who have done amazing, like Paul Bogards and, um, Brian Belfield, there's a a few people, but in any case, my mom was someone who kind of had her own little niche, which is that she took books that were either written by influential people who were not writers or by people who, you know, were essentially pushing some kind of agenda, (laughs) whether it's a, a, you know, a political agenda or a new Diet. I mean, I think, or, um, you know, an artist who was trying to say something interesting about the world, you know, she would promote their books. And so I well, guess she would be a lifestyle a,
1: Like, I'm just thinking like, because I wish you could all see Kara's face because she's kind of like, hmm. But I was just thinking like, people only write a book when they have something to say. That's right. And I guess that we wouldn't call it an agenda, but because we're like generous book people, but really, I even think novelists have their own agenda for themselves, you know that's a good point about novels. that's true.
0: and I, I I don't mean agenda in a pejorative way at all. I do think there was a reality of the time in which my mom's job kind of defined itself, which was that the the idea the 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 talk show, the syndicated talk show, and also like, uh, personal interest stories like in People Magazine and Time Magazine yeah. were what people consumed generally in this country, in America. And so the idea that you could kind of use those channels, Oprah, Donahue, Time Magazine, People Magazine. I mean, good. Donahue, even in <laughs> Australia, <laughs> mate,
1: massive fan. Yeah. Yeah. It's,
0: I mean, so Ricky Lake. Ricky like, Lake. I mean, Ricky all Lake. The shows. And then, I mean, of course, then there was a sort of hierarchy in terms of. Uh, I don't know.
1: I mean, Oprah but, was... High to low. There was yeah. a
0: high-low spectrum. And then you had the Today Show, which you still have, which is still one of the main channels for selling books, which is Today's Show, Good Morning America and CBS This Morning. But, you know, my mom's job was to place books and to basically kind of... There's a great... Do you follow Kardashian Colloquium? Which no. is like a philosophical okay. um treatise on... Or like an ongoing philosophical examination of the Kardashians. And she she posted this thing. It was like a picture. It was a meme. It was like a picture of Kim Kardashian. And it was like, publicity is selling the past to the future. That's so great and um, and true. I think I'm. I don't think I'm misquoting it. But but that was basically my mom's job, which was like, hey, this is what's been popular. Let me figure out what people are going to want, you know. And so that was her. And, and she did that with books. And then my dad was a packager and a publisher, but book packaging is interesting. I mean, it's like producing essentially, which is like, I have this idea and I know these writers and I know these distributors like Simon and Schuster and Random House and Penguin and whatever. And I'm going to put all those things together and make a book. So I want to make a book about a bunch of kids whose teacher is an alien. Let me find a writer who can write that. And then let me go to Simon and Schuster and say, will you distribute that? You know, so that was his job. And he had a particular interest in republishing old editions of genre. So Isaac Asimov, Bradbury, Ralph Ellison, uh, did a lot of science fiction, did a lot of, like, Raymond Chandler. And he had this company called iBooks, which was before <laughs> iBooks, before Apple iBooks. So I grew up both with a, obviously, a huge admiration for, like, physical books, reading, and also with two parents who really found the book industry very challenging. So I sort of was like, very aware and was told, don't ever go into publishing. And also like, this is always something that needs help. You know, promoting books is always something that needs help. And anybody, if you can get a book into someone's hand, you've done sort of a service. So I think that really informed my sensibility. And then going back to what I was saying before, which is that I've never had an easy time reading, is that my dad was so adamant that we'd be readers at a young age. And I hated it. I mean, I, and I, I still, I talk to a lot of people now who are like, I don't like to read. I find it too hard. I find it really challenging to get into books. And I felt the same, when I was a kid, I felt the same way. And I just did not, I have terrible ADHD as is evidenced by the way that I talk. And, um, my dad used to make me sit in my room for 30 minutes a day and read. And even if it was like, it's like what they say about writing. It's like, it was like in the calendar. Even if I just sat there and stared at the pages, you know.
1: That's Uh, a great idea for parents everywhere. (laughs) Maybe for all of us though. It is a good idea for all of us. We really should. And I think it just helps the concentration too.
0: It's also, I heard someone say once, it's like, if I get dressed to go to the gym and I walk to the gym, I'm working out. So, you know, you get to the gym, you're not like in your spandex and in the door and being like, you know, mm mm-mm. It's that kind of thing. It's like if I have a book, I put my phone in the other room, I'm sitting in the room, I have a candle lit, I'm probably going to read. Whether or not my attention span breaks or the phone rings or I get hungry or whatever. But so much of it is the showing up to do it. I do think there's a lot, there are many, many people, especially younger people who are just like, I don't want to do, I, I, it's too hard. It's too hard to read. It's too, it's too much work. And in the attention economy, where do books fall? I think like the greatest kind of fighting, the fighting chance that books have is actually that they counteract all of the other noise in the attention economy, like your phone and TV and the computer and TikTok and whatever.
1: Um, They feel like a relief to that now. And maybe, and kind of what you guys do with Bellatrist is you curate for us So, I mean, I was just thinking, I don't know when you said you would light a candle and read, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to go do that right now (laughs) and like have all these like poetry books around. But I mean, seriously, like if I had, and I do, Mm -hmm. you know, all these gorgeous books around and now books, I mean, they've always been beautiful, but they're so gorgeous because they have designers vying for our attention. You're like, which pretty book do I pick up next? And I feel like we all just need that, that way in, you know, it doesn't have to be that complicated nonfiction book about leaves, you know, yet.
0: (laughs) Well, it doesn't, it certainly, it doesn't have to, I mean, I think Emma, my partner in Bellatrix always is very adamant about, and this is where the performativity element of reading, which I am also very aware of and participate in, um, is, uh, is complicated because I think. And I think TikTok has done a lot to democratize this and take the pressure out of reading the right book. Now, whether or not you agree that we can hold all books in the same regard as literature, it is, I think, important that people feel like, I can read whatever. Like, I don't have to be reading, you know, I don't have to be reading Anna Karenina. I don't have to read, you know, I don't have to read something that is deemed super literary or challenging because I don't like it or it's hard for me. And then maybe in five years as you're reading more and you have more of an appetite for different kinds of fiction, you get to a book that is deemed prestigious or whatever. But I I think it is important that people get into reading however they want. You know, I read Gossip Girl and A-List and I used to read this series of um, like murder mystery books that always had some sort of element of baking and pastry. I love it. Um, But as a kid, you know, as as I remember, it was the first series where I was like, oh, this person wrote another book that I like. Whoa, like this person has a body of work where I want to read all the books this person writes. Um, But yeah, I think this, I think it's so important. You know, I have people who are like, I don't, I only read memoirs. I'm like, great. Yeah, You know, I think there is this, and I was talking about this in that article about book styling and whatnot, that like, it doesn't really matter. My point is that reading was very hard for me. It's still very hard for me. Like I don't, it does not come naturally to me. I have people in my life who are such serial readers. Like they read one book and they read the next book and they read the next book. And it's like, and they have read 70 books a year or a hundred books a year. That's not me. It's not easy and therefore it ha- it has meaning and it's important and it's, and it's good.
1: Well, in some things, like going to the gym, say, feel great once you've done them. I mean, reading in itself, 100%. you get to lose yourself in it, which is wonderful when it's going well. But then you do feel great after just living in another world for a little bit.
0: And these days, increasingly, just not doing something else. Like the concept of multitasking, which is already... Uh, an oxymoron because the brain literally cannot do more than one thing at a time. (laughs) You literally, you can't read and absorb what you're reading and do something else at the same time. And So just that in and of itself is such a pleasure, which I think some people sort of lament that that's something that's now become a pleasure, that it isn't just like a function of a life. But I do think increasingly that it's a pleasure, and it's like it's I think something that people – especially young women, that's who i talk to and know the most just because of who follows Bellatrix, but are like making a point of celebrating.
1: Correct me if I'm wrong, but the ethos of Bellatrix is that reading is an act of self-care. It's an act of time for yourself to just be with someone else's thoughts and dreams or whatever it is. I think
0: yeah. I mean I, I think Emma said that in some articles she did. Yeah, it, and she said that she said that and I think people really stuck. Yeah. Cause I think it was a little bit um
1: I mean self-care, I kind of find that word annoying now. <laughs> yes. But uh, uh, it feels like a bit like millennial pink. It it's is. like we've been there. Yeah, it's the
0: it's the self-care industrial complex. It's yeah. a very real thing. But it first of all, it's cheap. If you go to the library, it's really cheap. And two, it's actually something that's not a function of something else, which is to say that as much as I think that exercise and yoga and Pilates and facials and all, and it's, all that shit is fine and great. I mean, I do it. But I it it is is image-focused. And I think – I mean, books – it's funny. I, I find that reading is too. Like, I think there's – you just have a tremendous leg up intellectual – well, no, you have a tremendous leg up in the world if you – are an intellectual. Like, I, I I really believe that. And I think for whatever reason, <laughs> the sort of importance of that gets lost, not in New York City. That's why I'll never leave, but in other realms. And I've always found that that's like the best thing about me is like just being intelligent. I mean, and, and that I get from reading, nothing well, else. Isn't
1: that it's so incredible to value that most in yourself? As a woman as well, because there are so many signals that tell us all these other things. And if you can like truly come back to that, you're like, I'm invincible. And my whole life I get to be interesting. Yes. Because you're interested.
0: Yes, exactly. But that's to me, that's lesbian privilege. (laughs) That's very much lesbian privilege because I grew up in a patriarchal system, but not wanting to participate in the appeal of making myself appeal to men. Yeah, if there's one thing that I feel is is lesbian privilege, it's that. And not I don't think all lesbians feel that way. I'm speaking for myself, but I I think there is a sense of I spent a lot of time that I think is spent focused on participating in the sort of um, it, participating in heteronormativity. I could spend elsewhere. <laughs> I don't I it's heter, heteronormative life is so appealing that it took me until I was 25 to even say I was gay, you know, it's that appealing. But at the same time, I do think I just not wanting to be seen, not wanting to be adored by men it frees up a lot of time.
1: Definitely. <laughs> oh my God. I feel like I'd be, I mean, like the, the biggest like film producer like right now, if I had, if I could take back like every young woman I come across <laughs> who's in her early twenties, I'm like, if you could just not care about men and focus on But then what would we have to produce? No, I know. friends <laughs> no, or you know, yeah. there'd be so much. Yeah. Because I'm like, learn from my mistakes. Just Yeah. It's
0: funny though, because
1: you know
0: there's a Emily Nussbaum wrote this incredible kind of um celebration exoneration of Sex and the City in the New Yorker many years ago basically being like it's the sopranos and don't say otherwise and it's because the reason that it was i mean there's a million reasons why it was taken less seriously than the sopranos one of them being that it's a show about women who are focused on men but it does it in a way that is as literary as any other literary television and i think the idea of that that is frivolous is really very misogynistic. I think then the criticism of those types of things is like, is a function of the patriarchy, which is to pit people against each other who are both suffering.
1: Yeah. I wish I had just been able to hold them both a bit more gracefully.
0: Uh There's this Paula Fox line. Can I get it from my phone?
1: Oh my gosh. Yes.
0: Because this is what we're talking about specifically because... You know, you were saying uh, you you resist the kind of term self-care these days. And Paul Fox wrote this in 1970, mind you, okay? This is from Desperate Characters. It doesn't matter, he said, they are hostages to fortune. I love them and they suffocate me. And it's a business, like everything is these days. The having children business, the radical business, the culture business, the collapse of old values business, the militant business. Every aberration becomes a style, a business. There's even a failure business. The way in which the sort of desire to make money off of things that are supposed to benefit us is so in our faces, quite literally in terms of like, if I say the word toothbrush in my Instagram feed, I will get an ad for one of these millennial pop-up dentists. It's either the...
1: The skincare place you just drop into, the acupuncture place, the... No uh, vowels either. Never have any
0: vowels. The the names never have any vowels, like within, you know, but no vowels, whatever.
1: Uh, I digress. No, but this is the best because it's just so fun to hear your train of thought and where your mind goes and links to, because I think, you know, you're a producer, you produce um TV series and things. And I was thinking that if you're not a reader of kind of happy, happy endings, um can you tell us a bit like about the well, not necessarily happy endings, but the maybe the more, you know, Christmas sweater. I'm thinking of like that great Cameron Diaz film, you know, The Holiday. Where, the Holiday. Yeah. But how you evaluate Books for film because that's a huge part of my job is kind of reading something and feeling like even if our company doesn't adapt it, that someone would want to like those types of stories. Yep. And that seems so general, but you almost kind of know it when you read it. What kind of conversations do you and Emma have when you you're like this could be? Mm-hmm. I
0: think there's this sense of like oh we're in sort of peak IP frenzy right now, which we are. But books have always been made into movies. But there's this tremendous amount of white space that came out of, I think, streaming and the sort of desire to make more television and more good television. And then with that, more producers that were trying to adapt things for film and TV. And I think that what's happened is that more kinds of books have become sort of ripe for adaptation, just because there's more of a, um, an appetite for IP. That said, I still don't think it changes what makes a good adaptation. There are a lot of books that we choose for Bellatrix Book Club that are not mm. good television shows and would not be good movies. I've known Emma for 13, 14 years. When we first read a book, if we loved it, it should be a movie don't feel that way anymore. <laughs> yeah. Some of the best, best, best books have no plot. Some of the best, best books are amazing because of this, because of the writing. And does that translate into an adaptation? Definitely not. Especially sometimes things that skew very literary. But yeah, when I was young, no, I mean, back in the, but it was when I first sort of just started reading very sort of actively and thinking about, especially because Emma was an actor, thinking about, oh, could Emma be in this? I wasn't thinking so much about could this actually get made and would this could this be an ongoing series? And I think that still happens. I think this sort of frenzy around adaptation and getting the rights to something is completely batshit crazy and has gone way too far. I'm very happy for writers, though. I'm very happy for authors. I think it's really good for the book business. I think that the, the question, should this be a show or should this be a movie is not asked nearly enough. It just, to me, seems like, I don't think the general reading public or the general viewing public understands how much is optioned and never made. Mm-hmm. And that's normally because, one, it's inc- as much as there is, I don't know how many television shows are produced last year, some in 500, 600, um, as much as is being made, most things aren't made. And so you have a ton of books that come out A lot of those books are optioned. There's only so many really, there's only so many television writers who can do an adaptation right. And so it becomes a dwindling pool. All that is to say, I think that my reading behavior as I've gotten more into this part of my job has become more commercial. I've tended towards more what we call like commercial fiction because it just has more plot. And therefore is probably better for TV or probably better for movies. And also because feature films are really hard to make now. Whereas you could build a blockbuster out of uh, especially a genre title back in the day. I guess there's this big question. And that's why people were kind of focused on Nope this weekend coming out to see if like non-IP driven things can perform. But I think people forget that everything that is non-IP, most of that is Marvel (laughs) or DC or a graphic novel. All of this is to say that I definitely read different books that I didn't read when I was just reading for pleasure all the time, because it is at the end of the day, like the identification business of like, Will this work? It's not just, do I like it? And maybe I shouldn't do that. Maybe it should be more, do I like it? But I don't know. You kind of learn the, the market. I think it's what every person who like wants to call themselves creative and thoughtful grapples with. If you work in a business of creativity, which is how do I be popular? How do I do something that's going to be popular and also do something that's going to be good?
1: Yeah, well that's the best <laughs> things are both. Yes, but how rare they? are they? Yeah, it's hard. <laughs> I think even for me who is kind of has a vantage point into the world, it still still seems elusive. It's like how involved are you in the writers room process? Like yeah, yeah. how does it work? You say you and Emma, you find a book each of you and you agree that there's something here. What's the next? Like what are those steps mm-hmm. look like? The person
0: who I think has paved the way, sort of exclusively, is Reese Witherspoon. Yeah. So she has done an incredible job and a, and has just been very smart about what she's done and organic with Hello Sunshine. You know, I think she was someone who was an actress, was a was a reader, and was which is first of all, not rare. Most of the actresses that I know or who are in the industry who have production companies are actually voracious readers. But she, I think, was like, hey, I'm reading all of these things and I'm, I want to be in some of them and I want to make some of them. And so I'm going to do that. And sort of famously was not in Gone Girl, which ended up being a huge blockbuster and really positioning her as a, as a force as far as being a producer. So, looking at her career, which really, I think *Hello Sunshine started to take off, you know, I don't know, 12, 15, 12, 15 years ago, feels like less. But looking at her career and saying, how do we kind of do that? But it's me and it's my and Emma's point of view and our taste um, and our demographic, which is like squarely millennial. And I think what we then decided to do, and very sort of fortunate, we were very fortunate in this way, and I think obviously had a tremendous amount of help that I wouldn't say everybody has, which is, you know, Emma's an actor already. that She had established herself as that. And so we were able to get what is in the industry called like a first look deal, which is essentially this distributor, in the case of our first one, Hulu, will kind of retain you to find stuff for them. And so through that, we were able to hire another person who was named Matt, who is wonderful and really taught me and Emma, like, what the business of development is, which is very different than just liking a book. Yeah. (laughs) And um, so, you know, through that kind of learning that there's very much a process, I don't know how interesting this is to people who might be listening, but that there's very much a process to development, which is... You have to identify the, th- the thing, whether it's a book or a podcast or an article or, a, a you know, I mean, literally you can option anything these days. Um, a website, people <laughs> option Instagram feeds. You take that thing and you ask the question, will this work? Will this be good as a show or as a movie? And then you have to then find a writer that can adapt this thing. And also then on top of that, have to find a place that's going to actually either produce it as a studio or distribute it. And with the in the case of Hulu, you know, we did uh, – the the thing that came out of our deal is this book – is this show called Tell Me Lies, which is coming out in the fall. And it's based on the novel by Carol Levering. And that was a book that was actually brought to me by another producer named Laura Lewis who was like, read this book. I think it would make a really good show. And then we together brought it to Hulu and Hulu agreed that it was a very <laughs> good show. And then they – had us hire Megan Oppenheimer, who's the showrunner. And all, I guess the long winded answer to your question is being a producer in this capacity, which means like sort of having your own production company, having the things that you make be the sort of imprint of your own taste is to be there from inception to release and kind of be a part of the decision making at every Mm -hmm. step of the way. And To get very technical, you know, once you hire a showrunner for a show, they're like the boss of the show, Mm -hmm. Um, and they're the head writer, and they make every decision, and you work with them sort of hand in hand. It's—I said this to my mom the other day. It's like the, the executive producer is like the chairman, and the showrunner is like the CEO, in the sense of like it's a very much a symbiotic relationship. But the showrunner is the head writer. Well, if you get through any step of this, it's a miracle, and mostly, again based on the ability to both have taste and also have a sense of what the market wants. And it's it's basically like in publishing, it's like being an editor, you know? But it's like being an editor if, you know, yeah, no, it's like being an editor, <laughs> I guess, is being a producer. Yeah, and really
1: predicting, feeling like you're in a current moment, but what will the appetite be for certain types of stories a year from now? a year and a half from now, depending on what that is. Yeah.
0: Books are always, I think, both the predictor and the kind of uh, definer of the zeitgeist. They always have been and they always will be as far as I'm concerned. And especially in TV, especially now that so many shows and movies are based on literary IP. So I do think, going back to it, As much as there's this frenzy about, I'm going to option this book and I'm going to, or I'm going to buy the rights to this book for millions of dollars, there is a, it's intelligent to kind of look to books to see what audiences are going to be interested in because it's always been the case that what people are reading or what publishers are publishing is often ahead
1: of everything else. Yeah, the culture. Well, also, I think writers themselves are kind of the tuning fork. Like the best ones are like, what is going on? I feel like this topic, I can't let it go. Mm -hmm. And I think publishing can get, it can feel slow from the outside. But from my point of view now, I'm like, it is, it's fast. Like, are you kidding me? Like these writers go off They will sell a proposal, nonfiction proposal that could be like halfway there, a quarter there. And then they go on, they write for a year, the thing's done and it's out in 18 months. And it can seem like it's, you know, the release date is 2024 and you kind of go, oh, and then it's here before you know it. And I just think in terms of my own life, I'm like, remember those few goals I had, you know, before 2022 was going to roll around? I'm like... These authors have written their whole book and it's coming out. What the hell? You know, So it's just an interesting. But you're
0: right I mean, it is this weird thing of like it's but like you think about um, someone like Lauren Groff who like writes these just, whether or not it's short stories or fiction or short fiction or, or novel, so much work that she puts into writing one novel. And yet it can be so kind of like genre defining. And in that way, to me, it's actually the time it takes that is equal to how impactful it is. And I do think that like slowness or, you know, time is actually what equals relevance, you know. I don't think it's responding to the zeitgeist and being super reactionary and being like, oh, you know, People people are talking about, you know, Me Too. Let me write 10, let me publish 7,000 Me Too novels. Like, no, n- I don't want to read a novel that's responding to a moment. Yeah. It's not interesting. It's not, it'll never be interesting. It's like, write a novel, and if it's good, it will be relevant to people. <laughs> in terms of, like, Sweet Bitter was such a rare sort of lightning in a bottle. I know Steph Dandler, and I, I think she's so brilliant but I've, I've never talked to her about this specifically, but it's like this was her novel that she wanted to write and it just so happened that then people wanted to re- read about a young woman who was working in a restaurant, you know? And it's interesting, it's like The Bear is out now. Sweet Bitter came out, what, six years ago? Yeah. I mean, it, it's, and not that I'm saying there's a direct connection necessarily to the two, but I do think stories that have lasting impact don't have to be relevant in terms of the zeitgeist. They just have to be good.
1: And well, Lynn, I feel the way you're describing it, I'm just imagining I feel like the best writers are doing this gathering, a slow gathering, like it's a, like a ball gathering bits and bits from what they're seeing and noticing and kind of embedding it in their novels or their books. And then when we read it, it's just fully baked <laughs> in there. I, I know,
0: I know exactly what you're saying. There's really different kinds of fiction that I think are functions of the rest of what we do in our daily lives, like books that feel like television, you know. And then there are books that don't feel like. Te- what I mean by books that feel like television is more like when you watch a show, when you binge a show, the books that you're looking for are also books that you want to binge, you know. And that's not necessarily conducive to certain kinds of fiction. <laughs> but I do think that, like, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's like the penny press, you know. It's like whatever time you're living in, the sort of fiction, the very popular fiction is going to kind of reflect what else you do in your daily life. Whether or not it's stuff you can read on the train because you're commuting or stuff that you read because you spend the rest of your time on TikTok. You know, I you were asking about some recommendations, which I can also talk about.
1: Yeah. Give us one coming up that, or, or one from the past that you feel is a, is a favorite.
0: The one that stands out, and actually I'm going to say this because she has a new book coming out. Stay With Me by um, Ayobami Adebayo, who is a Nigerian writer. She has a new novel coming out, I think in the fall. I want to say in the fall, I don't know which month, but her, her novel Stay With Me has stayed with me is, is an incredible, incredible novel and is one that is a favorite of one that we've chosen that I just would suggest to everyone. The other one that people love, people loved My Sister the Serial Killer. I mean, more people talk about that book in our sort of Bellatrix space. It's just a fun book. I mean, yes, it's about a a woman who has a murderous sister, but it's just so, you know, it's, There's so many voices these days. It's like when you actually get to read something or watch something that feels unique Mm -hmm. and kind of like genre defining in the way that I find Melissa Broder to be too as a novelist, it's like, you're like, wow, someone actually got away with being unique. That's really cool. So that book is also um, Oyenken Breathwaite, I think is her, and she she has a new novel too that's going to be coming out, but I don't know when. So those two are great Belletrius picks. And also Wild Game, which is a memoir by Adrian Broder. I just adore that memoir and I was talking about it with someone the other day. It's just, it's a good, just, it's a very good memoir. And then uh, I really hope that a lot, I mean, we picked this book for July, uh, Like a House on Fire by Lauren McBrayer. And it's a book that is not your sort of typical uh, queer novel by any means in that it really ha- is comes in a very kind of heteronormative packaging and then all of a sudden you're reading it and you go, oh my God, this is a lesbian novel. Wow, that's weird. I didn't expect that. But it's so enjoyable and so much about, I think, something that a lot of millennials can relate to, which is this kind of like ambivalence that you feel once you're past the coming of age phase of your 20s just this kind of how, how you make choices when you're also kind of caught in in this like rigmarole of doing the right thing and having a family and all of it so, oh i can't wait yeah
1: okay last question mm-hmm. what lights you up
0: in life yes Oh, this kind of shit, you know, like talking. I love. I mean, obviously, as is evidenced by the past hour, I love to talk, but I don't like bullshit. I don't like um, like hanging out, but I like to talk because it's. I think the reason I like it so much is because it's the real. It's it for me. It's like flow. You know, like when I'm really having a good conversation about something, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm not thinking about myself. I'm not obsessing about myself, which I do so often. It, it's a relief to just have a conversation about something I, that lights me up really, like without fail. Without fail, and I'm not just saying that because I'm on a podcast. That's why, any that's why when you asked me, I was like, Yes, it'll, it'll be a nice opportunity to not be self obsessed for
1: an hour. <laughs> I know, I feel exactly the yeah. same way. What lights
0: you up? Oh, am I allowed to ask that?
1: Yeah, I think, yeah, that does. I'll tell you what lit me up the most recently. Mm-hmm. So I'm so lucky I get to go to the North Fork of Long Mm -hmm. Island and there's a garden foundation there called Landcraft and they had a raptor exhibition. Like the dinosaurs? No, the birds of prey, like the rescued birds of prey. So these like three rangers come with all their birds in these boxes and they have the craziest stories like Vlad the turkey vulture Like, they wanted to rehabilitate him. He wanted none of it. He wanted to just, like, hang out with his boys. I have a picture of me and Vlad. These birds were unbelievable. There was a a screech owl called Skittles who'd lost an eye. Like, they were just the most incredible things. And I honestly, I was like, I don't know what. I'm having a real moment here of being incredibly present and kind of in awe of... Nature And we we got to be so close to them. Um,
0: There's a bird sanctuary in New York that I don't know. I think it's on the Upper West Side. Or there's like a rescue if you're looking for another hit. I think I think (laughs) I need another hit.
1: So thank you. Thank
0: you. Thank you. This is really fun. Thank you.
1: Lit Up is a podcast from Sugar 23. It's hosted by me, Angela Ledgewood and is produced by Liam Billingham. Olivia Allmeyer is the marketing and editorial consultant. Mike Mayer and Michael Sugar are the executive producers. Andre Radovsky wrote the theme music. See you in two weeks.